Welcome to the Global Haemophilia Report, a podcast led by science, curiosity, and storytelling. Produced by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media and supported through advertisements by Sanofi. I'm Lawrence Wollant, your host, and I live with severe haemophilia myself. So far, this series has confronted the challenges of inhibitor development, explored novel approaches to haemophilia therapy, reviewed the current evidence around prophylaxis, considered innovative strategies for monitoring bone and joint health, as well as highlighted the impact of haemophilia on a young person's mental health. And of course, if you missed any of that, you'll find our first five episodes at globalhemophiliareport.com. For episode six, whilst we continue to focus on the state of research, we're going to dial the passion and activism up a notch. The topic? Prioritising research on the health and well-being of women and girls living with haemophilia. It is a highly charged and emotional issue, one that is rooted in historic and contemporary social injustice and gender inequality. With this in mind, we should address the elephant in the room. Me. I was assigned male at birth, and I continue to identify and live as a man. So you might be thinking, what gives Lawrence the right to tackle healthcare disparities of women in our community? Well, arguably, men are part of the problem and part of the solution, as we will find out. Men have an ethical obligation to make things fair. It is the right thing to do. Shying away from presenting this episode from fear of criticism would be hypocritical and cowardly at best. Moreover, we have an incredible array of clinical and patient contributors, both female and male, who are committed advocates of the need for better healthcare delivery for the female population. Oh, and by the way, whilst the episode focuses on women, girls and people who menstruate and those living with haemophilia, there's a lot of overlap with females living with other inherited bleeding disorders, so both descriptions will be used and referred to throughout. Without further ado, let's get into it right after this quick message. Sanofi is committed to bringing new perspectives and bold innovations to the global haemophilia community. Learn more about how Sanofi is breaking barriers and supporting the community at sanofihemophilia.com. The 18th century French philosopher and utopian socialist Charles Fourier was a radical of his time. He was the most ardent and voluminous advocate of women's liberation, and accordingly, Fourier is credited with having given the cause its name, Feminisme, in 1837. According to Fourier, the change in the historical epoch can always be determined by the progress of women toward freedom. The degree of emancipation of women is the natural measure of general emancipation. Fourier's conception of the position of women as an index of general social advance were used and transformed by other revolutionary socialists like Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, who discussed the social inequalities, oppression and exploitation of women within emerging capitalist society, although they are not without their critics. In response to the male-imposed social order, or the bourgeois patriarchy, as Marx and Engels put it, Women raised their own demands for equality through various global feminist actions from the 19th century to present day, which historians often refer to as waves of feminism. For example, the first involved the women's suffrage movements, such as the Paris Commune of 1871 in France, which aroused radical female-driven action. Women founded unions and committees to fight the various issues, like wage and voting equality, the right to divorce and to education, 
as well as dismantling the distinction between legitimate and natural children. They built barricades and took up arms against the government, holding the city for 72 days. Prominent figures like Louise Michel, a schoolteacher who used her oratorical prowess to rally the masses, is the only woman to have a metro station in Paris named exclusively after her. Fast forward to now, the fourth waivers, as they're known, are driving the movement behind the hashtag MeToo and Time's Up that are holding our culture's most powerful men accountable for their behaviour. Yet the majority of women in the world, nearly half of the population, are still unequal to men in social, civic, political, legal, economic, personal or cultural spheres. No single country can claim to have achieved gender equality. According to the United Nations, at the current rate of change, the global gender gap will not close for another century. You only need to look around an average boardroom to see why. Reported statistics continue to show the scarcity of women in CEO positions and the continued slow progress over time in getting more females into senior executive roles. Take the Fortune 500, which ranks America's largest companies. Female leadership accounts for just 8.1%, albeit higher than it has ever been. Gender equality was further stored by the coronavirus crisis, in which, according to a report by the European Institute for Gender Equality, 2.2 million women across the EU lost employment in the first wave, with 40% of all lost employment for women coming from the retail, accommodation, residential care, domestic work and clothing manufacturing sectors. Reports of gender-based violence also increased around the world, as high as 60% in some regions, when social isolation and quarantine measures came into force. Turning more closely to the theme of this episode, gender bias has a profound negative impact on women's health and well-being. Think about the study of anatomy. For centuries, this was largely limited to the male, often European form. Even today, anatomy textbooks focus primarily on the male body to visualise neutral body parts, whereas the female anatomy is often only considered important in terms of the reproductive organs, with diagrams showing women in the childbirth position. This has far-reaching consequences for the medical diagnosis and treatment of women of all faiths and backgrounds. By way of illustration, the results of a national audit programme into maternal deaths and morbidity in the UK last year showed that black women are four times more likely than white women to die in pregnancy or childbirth. The British feminist author, journalist and activist Caroline Criado-Perez argues in her critically acclaimed book, Invisible Women, that most of recorded human history is one big data gap, where women have been largely left out a result, she suggests, of implicit continuations of societal norms where men go without saying and women don't get said at all, leading to a world not designed around their needs, facing suboptimal services, products and experiences across many areas of their lives, including both access to and quality of medical care. This gender bias is also part of a powerful undercurrent in the context of care for women, girls and those with the potential to menstruate who live with haemophilia and other inherited bleeding disorders. Historically, from a genetic viewpoint, given its X-linked inheritance, it has always been taught and commonly thought that 
Haemophilia is a condition that only affects males, with females being, quote-unquote, haemophilia carriers, a label suggesting that women only carry the genetic alteration to their offspring, but will have normal factor A or factor IX levels, thereby free from bleeding problems. However, an increasing body of evidence contradicts this assumption. It is thought that the term haemophilia carrier may contribute to underestimating bleeding symptoms in women and girls and hinder diagnosis and management. According to emerging data, these bleeding symptoms are the same as their male counterparts across the spectrum of severity. In particular, the majority who have mild disease experience all the same unmet needs inherent to the mild phenotype, including untimely recognition of symptoms, diagnosis and treatment, while also facing the additional unique challenges associated with the potential for heavy menstrual bleeding, together with pregnancy-related and postpartum hemorrhage. So, with just that little bit of history, context and data in mind, let's begin to unpack the gender disparities facing women and girls living with haemophilia. Unfortunately, it's not unique to bleeding disorders, particularly if you look at so many things in society, a lot of them were started by white men, most times with money or resources that, you know, continue to have influences in every sphere, including medicine. This is Dr. Angela Wyant. She is a pediatric hematologist oncologist at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, a city west of Detroit, Michigan, in the United States. Dr. Wyant has a particular interest in the care of women and girls living with inherited bleeding disorders. She is also an advisor for this episode. There's many, many studies out there that show discrepancies in the amount of research funding for diseases that affect women versus diseases that affect men. For long time periods, we tried to extrapolate all those results to any other populations, whether it be women or minoritized populations. We tried to fit them into this hole that was created based on data from white men. So we need to be thinking about those things and how we include people in research studies, what research is funded, and even just in terms of, from a clinical perspective, listening to women and believing their symptoms and coming from a similar place that we do when we treat others. My name is Dawn Rodolini, and I am the Chief Operating Officer for the National Hemophilia Foundation in the United States. Referred to as the NHF. I also serve on the Board of Directors for the World Federation of Hemophilia, and I am the Chair of the Women and Girls with Bleeding Disorders Committee for WFH. When we look at historical perspectives, it's really difficult because, of course, we do not have hours to talk about the history of women not being included in the hemophilia space. However, I believe it comes down to real-world data. Until we start focusing on collecting data, we will not get the attention of payers. The term payer generally refers to people or bodies, other than the patient, that finance or refund the cost of medical products and health services. We will not get the attention of treaters. It's that data that the hemophilia treatment model really went after in the late 60s, early 70s. We need to actually be able to focus on women and girls with bleeding disorders. We'll come back to the importance of data and the relevance of existing patient-reported outcome measures for the female bleeding disorders community a bit later in the episode. For now, let's continue to shed light on contemporary discourse as it relates to women and girls living with haemophilia. Back to Dr. Wyand. 
another huge issue with women is that there is sexism and this hesitation to discuss issues that affect women like menstruation or postpartum hemorrhage, any of these types of bleeding that are specific to people that menstruate, I think just universally hasn't been talked about. And so it's been fascinating to see these patients come through my clinic and I'll start out and just ask you, so tell me a little bit about your periods and I'll say, oh, they're fine. And then come to find out they're bleeding for three weeks out of the month, which is very far from fine, but no one ever told them, these are the things that you should be looking for to be abnormal, or you shouldn't have to miss a week of school every month for your period, but they've just normalized that. Oftentimes with bleeding disorders, they're inherited. So it's no wonder that when the girl goes through multiple boxes of sanitary products in a month, that doesn't raise a red flag because her mom had the same thing when she was menstruating. When it comes to hemophilia, it's such different bleeding often than what they see in their sons. If a woman has a son with severe hemophilia and he gets big, swollen, red, painful joints, she's not necessarily going to connect that to oh, I've been anemic and had to be on iron since I was 16, right? It's difficult to make that connection. I think a lot of physicians don't make that connection. For clarity, the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, or NICE, who provide national guidance and advice to improve health and social care in the UK, define heavy menstrual bleeding, formerly known as menorrhagia, as menstrual blood loss of more than 80 millilitres per cycle, or qualitatively, as menstrual blood loss that interferes with a woman's physical, social, emotional and or material quality of life, irrespective of the volume of blood loss. Key features of heavy and abnormal periods include having to change pads or tampons more than every hour, having iron deficiency anemia, frequently soaking through bedsheets at night and bleeding that lasts longer than seven days. We know from the Center of Disease Control in the United States that it takes between 13 and 16 years to get an accurate diagnosis. The reason that women have been so overlooked actually comes down to the fact that, guess what? It's genetic, it runs in families. So when someone talks about what's normal for you in your family, you say, well, what's normal is heavy menstrual bleeding, bleeding for a month, bleeding so much that I can't go to work or school. Dawn can speak personally to this, since her father lived with haemophilia B and she is a symptomatic carrier to her 24-year-old son. That's what I was told by my mom. That's what I was told by multiple people in our family. In reality, it is that definition or that explanation of abnormal bleeding that can raise awareness. The other thing is cultural taboo barriers. There are many, many cultures. It is just not cool to talk about your period. And I've been only talking about the uterus. We don't talk about anything but the uterus if we finally talk about women and girls with bleeding disorders. We don't talk about joint pain, joint bleeding, other kinds of bleeding, major mouth bleeding, nose bleeds that are just ridiculous, the horrible gooey clots that can happen. All of that stuff we just don't associate with women or girls. There is a barrier to overcome with these assumptions and this cultural taboo and stigma. As we have heard, women and girls in the inherited bleeding disorders community depend on access to sanitary products to help them manage heavy menstrual bleeding. Therefore, they have a unique understanding of how a lack of products could severely limit one's quality of life and livelihood. The high cost of menstrual supplies can lead to period poverty among adolescents and adults, resulting in missing school or work 
and therefore exacerbating a barrier to equal opportunity in education or to achieving financial independence. We'll dig deeper into period poverty and much more right after this quick break. Globally, approximately 75% of people living with hemophilia have limited or no access to treatment. Sanofi is committed to helping address this public health crisis. In 2020, Sanofi, together with Sobi, extended their support for the WFH Humanitarian Aid Program, fulfilling their 2014 pledge to donate up to 1 billion IUs of Factor for humanitarian use over a 10-year period. This is the single largest donation of hemophilia factor therapy and has already provided treatment for more than 17,300 people in 43 countries, an important first step to providing a sustainable supply of therapy to those in need. To learn more about Sanofi's global commitment to the hemophilia community, visit sanofihemophilia.com. Welcome back. Now, broadly speaking, an estimated 1.8 billion girls, women, and non-binary persons menstruate every month. Yet according to the World Bank, over a quarter of those from high as well as low and middle-income countries are estimated to lack access to menstrual products and adequate facilities for menstrual hygiene management. For example, it is a widespread problem in Kenya, with UNICEF finding 7% of women and girls that they surveyed relied on old cloths, pieces of blankets, chicken feathers, mud and newspapers, while 46% used disposable pads and 6% used reusable pads. One policy intervention to improve access to menstrual health products and remove wealth-related inequalities is the withdrawal of taxes on sanitary items, which constitute an implicit form of gender bias. Given that they pose a financial constraint on women and not men, possibly perpetuating existing economic inequalities created by gendered wage gaps. In 2020, Scotland became the first country in the world to make tampons and sanitary pads freely available at designated public spaces like community centres, pharmacies and youth clubs. Other countries like New Zealand and France have invested in the rollout of free period products to schools. Several states in America have successfully repealed the tampon tax or the tax levied on menstrual products in states that consider them luxury items. I'm glad there's a lot of focus on this term period poverty. That's the voice of Dr. Robert Sedonio Jr., a pediatric hematologist and an associate professor of pediatrics and the director of clinical operations of hemostasis and thrombosis at the Children's Healthcare of Atlanta and Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia in the US. If you're an avid listener to the podcast, you would have heard Dr. Sidonia in episode three discussing prophylaxis. Dr. Sidonia began caring for women and girls living with inherited bleeding disorders back in 2010 as a research fellow at the University of Pittsburgh, where he set up a joint hematology gynecology clinic to improve the coordination of care, especially for his younger patients. Dr. Sidonio is an advisor to this episode too. One of the things that we notice is during the pandemic, a lot of these teenage girls that were getting those resources at school or local organizations, it was completely removed. I think a lot of people don't understand their perspective of this. So obviously not having access to products to help manage the menstrual bleeding is a big problem. These products are quite expensive. 
And if you're a teenage girl with heavy periods and you have a bleeding disorder, the amount of products that you go through is pretty astronomical. We had an office full of humongous box of products for a small number of patients just on a study. I've been wanting to take a picture and put it online just to get the scale of this. These girls are going through lots and lots of products and that could be quite expensive, particularly in families that don't have the resources. So there's period poverty in the general population and it gets amplified in those that have heavier menstrual bleeding related to their bleeding disorders. Someone who can relate to Dr. Sidonio's description of the socioeconomic burden is Yannick Cole, a 59-year-old female living with mild haemophilia from France. Yannick reflects on her own childhood experiences, as well as her interactions with today's generation of young women in the community. When I was an adolescent, I have to face the problem that my parents, and especially my mother, wasn't really in favour of using tampons, and she not really understand why I need that. So I buy it with my own pocket money, and uh, I can go with my friends to do other things, because buying three, four, five boxes, it was quite expensive for my small pocket money. I have met young girls or young ladies who are facing many um, problems. If you have to change yourself, your protection, uh, 10 or 12 times a day, it's it's uh, really expensive. We have to have in schools or different places somewhere when girls can fetch what they need at the moment. Uh, having uh, that kind of menstrual bleeding is stressful and quite difficult for girls and for young women. As alluded to earlier in the episode, the dogma that haemophilia affects only males and is transmitted through unaffected females or quote-unquote haemophilia carriers has over centuries hampered the recognition that women and girls living with haemophilia may bleed as significantly as affected males. So as a consequence, has created a number of barriers to disease management and research. To this end, a new nomenclature, basically a system of names or terms, has been defined by the Scientific and Standardization Committee of the International Society on Thrombosis and Hemostasis, abbreviated as ISTH, and published in their official journal. The ISTH is a global membership organisation of specialists in the field of blood coagulation. The Scientific and Standardisation Committee is a permanent committee of the ISTH and is made up of 20 subcommittees, one of which is on women's health issues, chaired by none other than Dr. Sidonio. Here he is to explain about the change in nomenclature. The nomenclature for haemophilia carriers and women with haemophilia, this was an initiative I started many years ago, and it's actually had to evolve a few times with this nomenclature. We wanted to try to come up with a standard language, so everyone's using the same lexicon. What do we call a woman or girl that has a level of 20%? For any newbies to the haemophilia scene and this podcast, Dr. Sidonio is referring to 20% of the normal factor activity level of either clotting factor 8 or factor 9 circulating in the blood. The normal level in persons without haemophilia ranges from approximately 50 to 150%. Persons with severe haemophilia have less than 1%, whereas individuals with moderate haemophilia have baseline factor levels of approximately 1 to 5%. Those with levels that are 6 to 40% are considered to have mild haemophilia. So we don't want to use the term symptomatic carrier for her. We want to use the term mild haemophilia. We also don't want her to lose the identity that she's a carrier because that's important. But we want to make sure if that woman shows up in the emergency room, 
I want the first thing on our chart to say mild hemophilia. That way, whatever provider's there is just going to say, okay, I'm going to treat this like I would any other man or boy that comes in. So I think it makes it really simple. It was through a consensus-building process involving haemophilia experts, patients, and the ISTH community that the Scientific and Standardization Committee arrived initially at five clinically relevant categories accounting for personal bleeding history and baseline factor activity levels. These were women and girls with mild, moderate, or severe haemophilia and symptomatic and asymptomatic haemophilia carriers. Interestingly, the committee acknowledged some potential weaknesses in the subtypes, particularly as it pertains to the deliberate use of the same severity levels as seen in males living with haemophilia that I described a moment ago, along with the use of a relatively subjective parameter bleeding phenotype, i.e. the variability in bleeding tendency. To articulate this further is Dr. Connie Miller, a geneticist and genetic counsellor by trade, who for 17 years worked as a research biologist for the Division of Blood Disorders at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC. She currently serves as technical supervisor and clinical consultant for the Hemiostasis Laboratory in the Hemiostasis Laboratory branch and is a stalwart advocate for women's bleeding disorders. We've known for a long time that women who carry a gene for haemophilia have a wide distribution of factor levels, either factor eight or factor nine. It can go all the way from zero, like an affected male, all the way up to over 100% and be totally normal, and yet they're still a carrier of hemophilia. The average for that distribution is 50%. Most laboratories use 50% as a cutoff for normal. That means that half of women who are carriers have levels below normal. And a good percentage of those are going to have bleeding problems. So if we consider that half of the carriers potentially having bleeding, then it's a large percentage of that population that may need care. One of my concerns at the moment is that in the paper published recently, we used the classification established by the ISTH, which uses a cutoff of 40%, for example, for an affected, affected male. We don't know what those cutoffs should be in females. All of our definitions of hemophilia are based on males. We don't know what factor level is required to have normal menstrual periods or to have normal delivery. Normal delivery, meaning childbirth. We're basing our classifications on lack of information. And it's the same way as in other areas of healthcare where studies are done in males and then everything is assumed for females. In hemophilia, we need to do those studies to see at what level women actually do bleed. What levels should we anticipate having a problem? We can't just test a woman and say, you're normal if she's having bleeding symptoms because we don't know that. We don't know what the levels are in women, and we don't know what the levels should be in a woman who may be carrying an abnormal factor gene. It could be that that abnormal factor is having some effect on her bleeding too. There's a lot we don't know about women, but we do know that we need to address at least half the carriers as having potential bleeding. In response to the ISTH Scientific and Standardization Committee's original manuscript of the nomenclature, Dr. Rachel Berkowitz, a pediatric hematologist and oncologist from Children's Hospital Chicago, published a letter to the editor 
calling for a concerted effort to move away from the gender binary that, she writes, permeates the haemophilia community in order to create inclusive clinics and disease definitions that reduce barriers to care for transgender and non-binary patients and their families. Here's Dr. Sidonio. In this sort of age of trying to improve and be more inclusive, the term women and girls, they wanted us to focus and say, well, obviously there are going to be transgender persons that may have an issue with this nomenclature. And what we decided was really simple. You know, when I created that term women and girls, it was already an established term. So we actually revised it and said, if you're a woman or girl, transgender person coming in with hemophilia and your level is 20%, you're just going to be labeled as mild hemophilia. We don't have to add gender into it. I do think it's important because I think there are differences in the way that genetic males and genetic females have hemophilia. And what I do want to do is I want to make sure that we're advocating for women's health. But we also need to focus on studies in transgender persons because there's probably going to be some differences, some nuances that we don't want to miss by lumping people all together in one group. As a marginalised population, transgender and non-binary people experience pervasive discrimination in almost every institution and system in their lives. There is clear evidence that the barriers encountered by trans and gender diverse people in healthcare are varied and often multiple, which can have an impact on healthcare access, use and outcomes. Incidents of cisgenderism and transphobia in healthcare have been documented and attributed partly to a lack of physician knowledge and denial of care on their part. It was only in 2019 that the World Health Organization, or WHO, no longer categorized transgender as a quote-unquote mental disorder after the approval of a major resolution to amend its health guidelines. Much like the feminist movement, trans people have struggled to be heard. Yet there is a contentious debate between and inside both communities on balancing the rights of both women and trans women, with some arguing that trans rights should not come at the cost of women's fragile gains, while others advocating that biological sex and gender identity are different but equally valid. The potential vagueness, offensiveness and dismissiveness of the notion of lumping different groups of people together that Dr. Sidonia referred to is also felt by Dawn Rotolini at the NHF. I do want to call out, though, it is not the intention by saying woman or girl with hemophilia to ignore the trans community. I understand people feeling left out. I've been part of that group for many, many years of being left out as a woman with mild hemophilia, but I don't have a diagnosis. So I understand that, but I think what's important is if we don't call it out, if we don't use names, then that part of our population, women and girls, will continue to not get diagnosis and treatment. I do think we have to do a better job of being inclusive of our trans community, but I also don't want to be so generic in the inclusion that now everyone is left out. That's an important and it's a difficult challenge, actually, because we don't want to leave anybody out. Whilst the literature around the lived experiences of women who bleed, particularly the barriers to care they may encounter, is still limited, the research does describe how some females feel unheard and disbelieved, with their symptoms being underappreciated, leading to a delay in diagnosis and access to therapeutic interventions. 
There are clearly many missing diagnoses of inherited bleeding disorders in women and girls, but the size of that diagnostic gap is unclear. In the US, one study, led by Dr. Miller, who we heard from a short moment ago, looked to estimate the number of females living with haemophilia that are already receiving care at haemophilia treatment centres, or HTCs, nationally, and to compare their clinical characteristics with those of males living with haemophilia also accessing care at these HTCs. Dr. Miller picks this up. We have been doing a series of papers based on data collected in the Community Counts program, which was instituted in 2011 by CDC. Community Counts is a public health monitoring program funded by CDC's Division of Blood Disorders, which seeks to gather and share information about the type of care people living with bleeding disorders receive through HTCs in the US. We focused on men and women with haemophilia and comparing them so that we could define based on factor levels which women met the ISTH criteria for haemophilia and what severity they were. We don't really have information in that data set on what their symptoms were, but we were able just to look at numbers. We found that the severe and moderate cases were quite rare as we anticipated. There were only 130 total in all 135 treatment centers. Those are rare cases, although they require just the same treatment as men with those factor levels. But I think the surprise to us was the number of women who had mild hemophilia. When we looked at the numbers attending the centers, one out of five people with mild hemophilia was female. That's a larger number than most people would anticipate. And we know that not every woman with mild haemophilia is getting to the treatment centers. So there's a gap in knowing how many people really are out there. Still, we have to consider that the women are a large percentage of the population that the treatment centers are dealing with. And we hope to go further and do additional studies with other data sets on the actual symptoms that people that women have and how they correlate with their factor levels and what kind of care they're seeking when they come to the centers. Yannick Cole, the female living with haemophilia from France that we heard from earlier, is also a board member of the French Haemophilia Association, or La Association Française de Haemophilie. Here is Yannick spotlighting the diagnostic gap for females in her native country. In France, we have um, a registry which named France, France Coag. There are 8,106 men and boys who are registered, and there are only 548 women and girls. So there is really, really a lack because uh, many, many girls and women, and especially also the, the older women who have probably for the main part of them not been diagnosed, it's really, really important to make a work for them because they have bleeding problem and they are sometimes in danger because if you go to the main surgery without any protocol and any treatment to cope with your bleeding disorders, it could be really dangerous for you. Let's now speak to one healthcare provider on a local level about the numbers of women living with haemophilia accessing their services and the type of care that they receive. I'm Tyler Buckner. I'm a haematologist at the University of Colorado Haemophilia and Thrombosis Center. Our clinic uh, certainly has a good proportion of women with haemophilia A and B 
uh, with von Willebrand disease, other rare bleeding disorders. So our clinic is not just men and boys, it includes all sexes. The proportions are more even perhaps, and maybe even leaning slightly toward more women, particularly in von Willebrand disease. But it is a sizable group. One of our physical therapists, Laura Singer Fox, asked the question from a research standpoint of whether women were as likely to be seen for comprehensive evaluation, which is the traditional way that we see patients in the United States who have a bleeding disorder. Dr. Buckner is referring to Laura Singer Fox's retrospective cross-sectional study that sought to highlight the gender-based differences in comprehensive care using a sample from the data set of patients enrolled in the American Thrombosis and Hemostasis Network, also known as ATHEN. The ATHEN dataset is a national partnership in the US between haemophilia treatment centres and ATHEN, a not-for-profit organisation, to monitor trends, address unanswered questions, develop cost-effective care, monitor the safety of therapies, and gain a better understanding of bleeding and clotting disorders and their management. Dr. Butner is a member of Athens' board, as is Dr. Sidonio. The sample from the Athens dataset used by Dr. Singer Fox in her study was from a two-year period between April 2016 to April 2018, in which 7% were female. When she looked at those data, and these were from across the US, uh, women were much less likely to have had a comprehensive visit, even when considering their level of disease severity. Um, so there is still an imbalance there that shouldn't be there. Laura concluding, among other things, like variability in healthcare professional practices and surveillance, that, quote-unquote, at some level of the patient care paradigm, gender is making an impact. One would expect the bleeding symptoms to be the same for men and women with mild hemophilia, except with the addition of the risk that a woman with mild hemophilia also has heavy menstrual bleeding, as well as any risk associated with pregnancy or deliveries. So there is perhaps even more reason to see a woman in a hemophilia clinic if she has mild hemophilia. We're going to address bleeding during pregnancy and postpartum hemorrhage in women and girls living with hemophilia very shortly. For now, we're going to stick with Dr. Buckner, who has a particular interest in how best to measure pain of people living with inherited bleeding disorders to gain an understanding on the prevalence of joint hemorrhage and arthropathy in this population. We'll get into that right after this quick break. Did you know that nearly 80% of bleeds in hemophilia occur in the joints? Joint bleeds are the most common type of bleed and can cause lasting damage as well as increase the risk of recurrent bleeds. Sanofi is committed to breaking barriers for patients, including providing resources and education to support joint health. Visit hemejointhealth.com to see how routine, objective assessment might benefit patients' joint health for the long term. Again, that's heme, as in H-E-M, jointhealth.com. This site is intended for U.S. healthcare professionals. Welcome back. When compared with severe haemophilia, which we've identified in terms of prevalence among women, is rare within rare, individuals with moderate and mild disease both exhibit less knowledge about haemophilia and lack the capacity and confidence to identify and manage joint bleeding, 
placing them at significant risk for musculoskeletal complications throughout their lives. We asked Dr. Buckner about his clinical experience of joint bleeding in female patients. In my anecdotal opinion, I think it's certainly under-recognized in women. It's often difficult to diagnose uh, someone who's had joint bleeding without very involved kind of evaluations like MRI of joints. We do try to evaluate someone's joint health, whether they be male or female, with physical exam. Our clinic happens to use the hemophilia joint health score for all of our patients. Um, but that itself can't prove that someone has problems in their joints due to bleeding. If you already subscribed to the Global Haemophilia Report, you may recall that the Haemophilia Joint Health School, or HJHS, was featured in episode four on bone and joint health. Make sure to download it if you've yet to listen. A lot of it comes down to connecting what we see on a person's physical exam with symptoms that they've recognized over time, whether it be pain or swelling, because women have not been taught from young ages to watch for those symptoms and associate them with bleeding. Often the symptoms can be subtle and are just not recognized as a bleed. So it's hard to connect those things if you're looking backwards in time. For instance, we'll meet a woman, we'll talk to her about her story, we'll find out she's got lots of different types of bleeding and lo and behold, she has low factor nine levels. So you have hemophilia B. And those times when you rolled your ankle as a teenager playing volleyball or basketball and it swelled up for two weeks, that was probably a bleed. But it was never thought it was just a sprained ankle because back then women didn't have bleeding, of course. It was the prevailing belief. I'm hopeful that as we change the way we approach and think about bleeding disorders in women, uh, that will begin to change. What about you, Dr. Sidonio? We have some unpublished and published data. Through the Athen data set, we were able to show somewhere between 6 to 10% of hemophilia carriers have reported at least one joint bleed in their lifetime. It's not corroborated, but we did do a couple studies years ago in which we looked at this a little bit closer and we found a rate about 10 to 15%. You see that in a number of studies, it's around that percentage. That's why we need these natural history studies. Most patients don't have more than two or three joint bleeds their entire lifetime. Again, we need better studies to look at this. We actually did an MRI study when I was at Vanderbilt. Before moving to Atlanta, Georgia, Dr. Sidonio was assistant professor of pediatric hematology at the Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee, in the US. We took the carriers that had abnormal joint range of motion, and we focused on those joints. That's typically hips, knees, and ankles. And we found actually evidence of previous joint damage in those women, even those that report no pain or any sort of outward signs of joint damage. And we actually saw old blood that was in their deposition of what we call hemosiderin. We saw some changes that are classic for hemophilia, something you typically would see in a mild hemophiliac, you know, as somebody in their 30s or 40s. So we're able to demonstrate on imaging that that definitely occurs. And we showed similar on the retrospective chart review that was done recently in which we looked at carriers and women with hemophilia. 
The study in question by Dr. Atifa Chowdhury and Dr. Sidonia and colleagues involved reviewing the medical records of 47 women and girls living with haemophilia from across three haemophilia treatment centres in the US between 2012 to 2018 to examine their clinical characteristics and outcomes. We saw that a number of them had history of traumatic and spontaneous joint bleeds. In fact, 23 out of the 47 women that had reported bleeds, so nearly half, 39% of those bleeds were in the joint. Because MRIs are very expensive, they're very labor-intensive, they take over an hour just to do two joints. So it's good as a good hard outcome to prove definitively, but it's just not very feasible to get everybody to do MRI. I think we need things that are a little easier and maybe things in real time. That's where we probably need to do a couple of things like point-of-care ultrasound, following over long periods of time to see, is there any role of that in this population? Again, check out episode four of the Global Haemophilia Report on bone and joint health for background and context of point-of-care ultrasound, or POCUS as it's known for short. Like if I have a carrier or a woman or girl with haemophilia and they have what they think is a joint bleed, you can just do something as simple as an X-ray and you can see fluid or you can just get a standard ultrasound. I do this either in the emergency room or the acute care setting because later on, I want to know for sure, was that a joint bleed? So we've done that. We've had patients come in and had a couple times where it looked like a real joint bleed. I think moving forward, there's no ambiguity. There's no debate or dispute whether that was a true joint bleed. One of the major symptoms of a joint bleed is pain. For people living with severe forms of haemophilia, pain can be a lifelong issue, particularly with the progression of joint disease as a result of repeated bleeds. FYI, we have an upcoming episode entirely devoted to pain and pain management, so make sure to hit the subscribe button on whichever platform you choose to listen. I'm really quite keen on all of my organic promoting and reminders for you to check out the rest of the show. Well done, self. Anyway, back to it and getting away from the joints. When we consider the physiological process of normal menstruation in females, during ovulation, so when an egg is released from a female's ovary, a small amount of bleeding may occur with rupture of the ovulatory follicle and formation of the corpus luteum, which may be associated with abdominal and pelvic pain. Therefore, for women and girls living with bleeding disorders, this pain can be exacerbated due to heavy bleeding or ovulation, including significant bleeding into the abdominal and pelvic cavity, known as hemoperitoneum. So, the key question is, how do physicians caring for women and girls living with haemophilia and other bleeding disorders assess and manage specifically pelvic pain in this population? We asked Dr. Buckner, whose clinical and research interests lie primarily in the area of chronic pain, to explain. Measurement of pain is really complex, and there are a number of reasons that underlie that complexity. It's a very individual experience, and pain, by definition, depends on the person who's experiencing it to define it and to measure it and to quantify it. I often hear pain measurement referred to as being too subjective. Well, that the term doesn't apply to pain measurement. It's as objective as we can make it because the only way to measure it truly is to ask a person what their pain is like and how it's affecting them. If we're talking about measuring joint pain, you can't 
measure pelvic pain in, in the same way. Clearly, it, its location is different, but it, its character is different. Its effect on day-to-day -day life is different. Its causes are different. Its treatments are different. So certainly, if we are aiming to improve the well-being of our patients, and if some of our patients are women and girls who have bleeding disorders and you have pelvic pain, whether it's because of abnormal bleeding or not, then you know we need to better understand that and better understand, well, what are we aiming at? If we're trying to make things better by treating someone's pain, how do we know that we're actually making a difference? But to my knowledge, there is nothing within the bleeding disorder space that measures or asks about specifically pelvic pain uh, at least not in a way that's gone through rigorous development and validation process. Now, it is certainly true that measures of that group of symptoms, pelvic pain and its effects, have been used and developed in other groups of people, whether they're coming from an, a GYN clinic. Short for gynecology clinic. Or from a chronic pain clinic. Those measures may work just fine for our patients. And really, there's a ton that needs to be done to begin to figure that out. Does my patient think it's useful? Are they able to interpret those numbers or whatever the scores come out? Do they think the questions really apply to them? Those are the kind of investigations and questions that are asked about in the field of patient-reported outcomes all the time. It's just that this is an area where we haven't done a lot in bleeding disorders and have a ton of opportunity to move that forward. That's a convenient cue for us to consider the female reproductive system in more depth. Earlier in this episode, we discussed the socioeconomic burden of heavy menstrual bleeding for women and girls affected by haemophilia. Let us turn our attention to the health and quality of life impact of abdominal uterine bleeding, including heavy menstruation, on the female bleeding disorders community starting with the social and cultural stigmatization of menstrual periods. A significant body of literature supports the stigmatized status of menstruation in society, which has detrimental consequences for girls' and women's self-esteem, body image, self-presentation and sexual health. Equally important is the evidence that suggests that menstrual status, both actual and symbolic, primes and elicits negative attitudes towards women. I am conscious of the fact that menstrual bleeding has different meanings or contexts in different populations. This is Dr. Andrew James, an obstetrician gynecologist with a focus on maternal fetal medicine or high-risk obstetrics, as well as having special expertise in haematology. She's also a professor emeritus of obstetrics and gynecology at Duke University School of Medicine in Durham, North Carolina in the US. For instance, there are some religious groups for whom women are considered unclean while they are menstruating. So a woman who is having excessive menstruation or prolonged menstruation in the context of an underlying bleeding disorder is gonna be further shunned or discriminated against. That's not typical here in the United States, but there are some groups even within the United States for whom that is true. There are families in which discussing menstruation is taboo. Girls may not even feel comfortable talking to 
even their closest female relatives or the school nurse about what they're experiencing. And then the other problem we have is in a family of women with bleeding disorders, heavy menstrual bleeding gets normalized. That is the norm. That's just our periods. That's just normal for our family. And you shouldn't worry about it, even though you may be anemic. <laughs> or the woman and mother, and then the mother's sisters, although there might be one sister who has an abnormally light period. The one with a normal period is considered to have the abnormal period. We heard something similar from Dr. Wyand in the opening segment. Here she is again. We have stigmatized menstruation for as long as history's been written. These very, very old scholars would write these crazy things about what happens to women when they have their periods. And it's always like dark and don't touch them and they're dirty and it's, you know, associated with the devil or something horrible will happen if you are around someone who's menstruating. We like to think like, that's so crazy that they thought those things, but they still don't show menstrual blood on TV and they don't talk about menstruation. You see a sanitary product commercial and there's that like light blue liquid that they use for absorbency or whatever. It still is very much stigmatized. Unfortunately, that leads to a lot of downstream effects with you know, patients not recognizing that their symptoms are abnormal. A lot of providers don't necessarily have the time to ask or even maybe realize when things are abnormal. And then we don't diagnose the people. And when you don't have the people diagnosed, there's not a lot of impetus to further research in that field. So I think, unfortunately, these things kind of perpetuate one another and all are related. They're also very big problems to tackle because it is at that societal level. I can get on my soapbox wherever that may be, but it's much bigger than that. For women and girls living with inherited bleeding disorders who do experience heavy or prolonged menstrual bleeding or menorrhagia, what can they do about it? Let's dive into the uterine structure and physiology to understand its functions and how this informs the nature and current treatment of reproductive organ bleeding. Over to you, Dr. James. The uterus was designed to carry the unborn baby for approximately nine months. Maternal blood flows through maternal blood vessels into the uterus, and the developing embryo or fetus has a placenta, which meets the maternal blood in the uterus and acts like tree roots to absorb all the nutrients it needs. Now, that space where the placenta implants has multiple little open blood vessels that need to constrict after delivery of the placenta at the time of miscarriage or childbirth or during a menstrual cycle. Because it's the uterus just has a number of open, tiny blood vessels waiting to nourish a potential embryo or fetus through the placenta. I think we have a pretty basic response to uterine bleeding, and that is to delegate most of the work to the obstetrician-gynecologist. We ask the obstetrician-gynecologist or other women's healthcare provider to manipulate the menstrual cycle so that the lining of the uterus doesn't build up, we thus can reduce the amount of menstrual bleeding. We have 
many more hormonal treatments than we did when I was started. We had a birth control pill. Now we have a progestin impregnated intrauterine device. Also known as the COIL and abbreviated as IUD. Which remarkably reduces heavy menstrual bleeding without subjecting a woman to estrogen, and it can be used across the lifespan. Uh, We have tranexamic acid as an approved non-hormonal treatment for heavy menstrual bleeding with the combination of progestin-only contraceptives, combined hormonal contraceptives, the progestin-only IUD, and tranexamic acid. We can manage a substantial portion of bleeding from the uterus without having to resort to ablative treatments that actually destroy the lining of the uterus or, as a last-ditch, hysterectomy. But in a woman with a bleeding disorder, all of this is best managed in a team approach with the hematologists. What do you think, Dr. Wayand? Do you align with Dr. James's perspectives on available interventions for heavy menstrual bleeding? We do have a lot of success treating heavy menstrual bleeding with hormones, and there is a million different birth control pills. There's a million different modes of administration. There's all these different things that can be very, very effective. So that's a very positive thing, but I think also contributes to people not necessarily even using the more hemostasis-specific products. I know in my clinic, we oftentimes will be trying every different hormonal thing, and then I'll stop and be like, you know, we could just try to give them factor. I think about this a lot, and I don't feel like... um, I have my head totally in the sand, but I definitely had that experience where I think to myself, wow, this patient has failed a lot of other things. Let's try factor. And I'm not sure why I didn't do that six months ago. What about the team approach that Dr. James referred to? What model of care have you adopted in Ann Arbor? Yeah, so I um, started on his faculty in 2016 and immediately started our clinic that I run with a pediatric and adolescent gynecologist. Luckily, the combined kind of multidisciplinary dedicated clinic for this population is increasing in terms of prevalence. There's a really good foundation in the United States, the Foundation for Women and Girls with Blood Disorders that has helped people start clinics and connected clinics in terms of figuring out logistics and what other people are doing and what works and also trying to put together materials for education for patients and also best practices. I know there's a group out of Europe that also has put together some kind of best practices for this type of clinic and for the care of these patients. Dr. Sidonio, what are your perspectives on the combined clinic model? I think it's been demonstrated for quite a long time that it works. We don't have large-scale studies to show that patients do better, but it's one of these things where it's so obvious that you don't need to prove it in a clinical trial. I mean, these have been going on for the last decade or so. I had one when I was a trainee in Pittsburgh. I started one when I had my first job in Nashville, Tennessee. Then we have one in our pediatric clinic, and there's one in the adult clinic. I really feel like it's helpful because Sometimes one of the provider will go in while the other one is maybe seeing another patient. We often talk about the patient before we go in. So for me, it's useful because then I can just kind of turn to the gynecologist and say, hey, this is what I'm thinking. Do you think this would be a good strategy? And he or she will say, well, I think this is useful. So actually you leave the clinic with a plan that both providers agree on. And obviously the patient would need to agree on it as well. It helps close the loop quicker. I think we've learned how to take better care of these patients and that one strategy isn't going to work for everybody. 
We'll next discuss prenatal health, pregnancy and postpartum just ahead as we move towards the conclusion of this episode. But before we do, we'll take one more quick break during which you'll hear about another Bloodstream Media podcast that's entirely dedicated to women, girls and those who menstruate. It's called Flow. Hi, it's Jessica from Flow. I'm here with Sarah Watson, sex therapist. And we are always asking, because we always want to know, how's your flow? See, we are advocates for menstrual awareness. Which means we are keen on bringing you resources like doctors, patient stories, and other advocates, all to normalize the conversation around extreme periods. Because with generations of patriarchal influence to overthrow, too many people are still intimidated by the bleed. Shocking. Listen, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Now that you've subscribed to Flow and are prepared to continue your bloodstream media journey into the health of female menstruators, let's pick back up where we left off. For symptomatic carriers and women living with haemophilia, the possibility of transmitting the genetic defect to offspring can complicate reproductive decision-making and elicit feelings of guilt and self-blame in parents. Prenatal diagnostics are primarily used to guide obstetric management and to enable parents to be psychologically prepared for raising an affected child. To elaborate on this further is Dr. Maureen Baldwin, Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynaecology from the School of Medicine at Oregon Health and Science University in Oregon, the US. If somebody knows that they have a bleeding disorder, ideally they would be recommended to meet with a genetic counselor prior to attempting pregnancy. But we know that even though a preconception consultation is recommended for every person, that really only a very small proportion of people seek prenatal consultation prior to getting pregnant. I'm having this conversation with many, many pregnant people after they already are pregnant. I'm screening them for whether they have any inherited conditions that they could pass on to their baby. And I'm finding that many of them haven't had that consultation. So I think one of the biggest barriers is just having this recommendation to have a prenatal discussion. Now, for many people, that would not change their route of getting pregnant and deciding to be pregnant. It would just mean that they then would have some better understanding of the chance that they might have an affected child. So we do that consultation during pregnancy when we've decided that they have that issue. And then their pregnancy recommendations can be tailored to the risk for the baby. Dr. Baldwin just referred to the intervention of a genetic counsellor before or during pregnancy. Well, let's understand the dynamic between the genetic counsellor and patient further by hearing straight from the horse's mouth, as they say. Hi, my name is Kristen Paulison Nunez. I'm a genetic counsellor at Duke University Health System. That's the same institution that Dr. Andrew James resides at, who we heard from at the top of this segment. I've been a genetic counsellor within the departments of OBGYN, Duke's obstetrics and gynaecology program, and Center for Hemostasis and Thrombosis. I primarily care for women and girls who have been diagnosed or are going to be diagnosed with a bleeding disorder. I have a particular interest in reproductive challenges and reproductive options that exist for women with bleeding disorders during pregnancy to manage not only them, but also provide safe delivery and optimal health for their newborn. I'm also the immediate past president of the American Board of Genetic Counseling. So having done this for 20 years, specifically in hemophilia, 
It's interesting to see how the trend that's changed over the course of years. When I first started off, patients who were carriers with hemophilia oftentimes would be afraid to walk into my office to talk about prenatal diagnosis or access to tests that might provide them with information about the status of their baby, whether it was affected or unaffected, female, male. I would often ask them why they were so reserved or afraid to talk about this. And they would often tell me that it wasn't an accepted practice. There was concern for being shunned because that was information that they wanted and that it wasn't embraced in the community. The barrier was one, the social construct that existed within the community that you shouldn't be doing this. And so for a lot of women, I think there was a lot of shame around seeking just information about the option for prenatal testing. That's changed over the course of many years. It's wonderful to see it. There's been a tremendous amount of carriers who have written why they want to do prenatal testing or why they're seeking out information. There's been much more of an opportunity to embrace the idea of women doing prenatal testing in their pregnancies, particularly within the hemophilia community that have really opened up the doors to allow women and families to prepare differently. For some women, it actually causes more anxiety to have that information just to enjoy the process. And I think that we need to value those things as much as we value the utilization of prenatal testing. I think the other group of individuals says to me, yes, I need to know with absolute certainty whether this baby has this condition or not because the information is relevant to me. I will change where I deliver. I will change how I deliver. I will change how I prepare for the birth of this baby. Some women will say, I may not continue a pregnancy if I know my baby's affected. Then there are some that are like, geez, I'm not sure that I'm ready to go to either poll, you know, doing nothing versus doing something more specific and diagnostic. So we'll choose to do more screening options. What about for those women that don't know or even realise that they're a symptomatic or asymptomatic carrier? How do they seek this level of information and support? I think for the ones that don't know, the barrier is that they don't even really know how to seek out the person who can help them to find out if they're a carrier. This goes back to education. Who are these women meeting along the way that they are telling that they have this family history of hemophilia and who is listening? Who's gonna be that one person who's gonna say to that individual, yeah, you're at risk for being a carrier for hemophilia, we should refer you to talk about your chances of being a carrier and whether or not you would wanna do any carrier testing to find out what the particular variant is that causes you to be a carrier. We did a study through Athen almost a decade ago where we wanted to know if most women who are identified as carriers are not getting care at a hemophilia treatment center, then who are they telling that they are a carrier for hemophilia How are they accessing care? Well, we found out that the majority of individuals who are seeking information about their carrier status are coming by way of OBGYNs, not hemophilia treatment centers, which was incredibly enlightening. Like in my mind, based on that hemophilia treatment center model, you're caring for the affected individual, but you should also be caring for the entire family. And in doing that, you should be referring at-risk family members to the appropriate individuals who can talk to them about carrier testing and can talk to them about testing options. And with regards to the screening and diagnostic tools themselves? There are 
newer technologies in this space that can provide us with some general screening about the chances that an individual could be affected with a particular condition. So in the space of hemophilia, there is what is called prenatal cell-free DNA, or it's also known as non-invasive prenatal testing. We can utilize that test, which is a blood test that can predict biological sex of a baby. So if I know mom is a carrier for hemophilia and she has this test and we know that the baby is predicted to be male, then I can better predict what the risk would be for that male child to have hemophilia, which would then be 50%. For any listeners unaware of the inheritance pattern for haemophilia, here's the deal. Humans inherit their genes from their parents. Those genes are packaged onto chromosomes. Each individual typically inherits a pair of sex chromosomes that determines their biological sex. Biological females inherit two X chromosomes, one from each parent, and biological males inherit a single X and a single Y chromosome. Both factor VIII and factor IX genes are located on the X chromosome. Therefore, if a biological male inherits a copy of the gene that is coded incorrectly, known currently as a pathogenic variant and formerly known as a mutation, they will develop the condition. There is a 1 in 2 or 50% chance that a biological male conceived by a carrier mother will have haemophilia. Back over to you, Kristin. Then the newer technologies I'm hoping that will get into this space are what are called single-gene NIPT. Which stands for non-invasive prenatal screening. This testing analyzes small fragments of DNA that are circulating in a pregnant woman's blood to determine the risk that the fetus will be born with certain genetic abnormalities. They're doing it for certain genetic disorders like cystic fibrosis, spinal muscular atrophy, and sickle cell disease. But I'm hoping in the future we can actually utilize mom's blood and looking at amplified regions of these genes or gene in this case, predict whether the baby would be affected or not, and then confirm that with either CBS, chorionic villus sampling, or amniocentesis. Both provide diagnostic information about the status of a baby, whether or not a baby would be affected with hemophilia. Generally, the risks associated with those tests are procedure-related complications that can cause miscarriage, but those risks are going to be much less likely than the probability of having an affected child. There is also what is known as pre-implantation genetic testing, which involves obtaining eggs and sperm, fertilizing in the laboratory, and then we biopsy the embryo and send off about five to 10 cells of the embryo to see if the baby is affected or this embryo is actually carrying the particular genetic disease in question. This allows couples to manage what embryos they will actually implant. If we have five embryos and two of those embryos are not deemed to have this particular genetic condition, then they would utilize those two embryos to transfer in the hopes that one will implant and result in a live-born baby. So I think there's many more options for families with hemophilia in managing pregnancies, whether they choose to do prenatal testing or not. Here's Dr. Baldwin to close out this section on prenatal testing. 
discussion around prenatal genetic testing has really focused a lot on accuracy of the diagnosis and how do we find the best test to really be sure that we're diagnosing things correctly. That's extremely important in making the testing more efficient, making sure that parents understand their potential risks that they're going to have an affected child or what that diagnosis might be. The more research we do on genetics, the more expensive those genetic tests become and they become less accessible to the general public. To make that kind of testing more efficient and potentially even less sensitive and just more of a screening test would be useful as well. That sometimes comes to doing a screening survey and not just a genetic test, but just identifying whether the parent is affected. So our discussions around this really tried to focus a lot on equity. During pregnancy, the hemostatic balance is changing towards a pro-coagulant state in order to be prepared for blood loss during delivery and the postpartum period, i.e. the time after childbirth. This pro-coagulant state is caused by a physiological increase of many coagulation factors, including factor VIII and von Willebrand factor, with a peak shortly before the baby arrives. The procoagulant state is also characterized by a decrease of anticoagulant proteins and reduced fibrinolysis. In women living with bleeding disorders, physiological procoagulant changes in hemostasis also occur but are often insufficient to prevent bleeding. Therefore, these women have an increased risk of excessive bleeding after delivery while also affected neonates are at risk of perinatal bleeding complications, including intracranial hemorrhage. Here's Dr. Baldwin again to explain. There's bleeding associated with pregnancy throughout the spectrum of pregnancy, and the risk for bleeding depends on a lot of factors, not just the size of the placenta and how advanced the pregnancy is, but for example, in a full-term pregnancy being delivered, the risks are also related to whether there's an infection, how long the labor has been going on for, a lot of things about the patient's previous obstetric history play into whether there might be a bleeding risk. So we have a lot of ways to tell whether we think somebody might have extra bleeding at the time of a birth. And that goes for people with and without bleeding disorders. We spend a lot of energy talking about assessing the factor levels during pregnancy, and a lot of patients and hematologists are really worried about the factor levels. But we don't apply our management very differently based on factor levels. If somebody has a bleeding disorder, we're going to do all the things we can to reduce their chance for bleeding. We do rely on the hematologists a lot to tell us how to order the factor. Meaning clotting factor replacement therapy. What is going to help this person's bleeding? For example, I took care of a patient with a hemophilia a while back. She had two prior deliveries without knowing she had hemophilia. And I believe she was diagnosed with hemophilia based on one of her babies being diagnosed. In fact, she had never had extra bleeding with her births without any treatment at all. So for the third delivery that I was involved with, she was referred to our center because we have a big blood bank and we have all the factor that's needed for management. She traveled far away from her home to come and deliver her baby with us. She had a huge plan about giving her the factor at a certain timing related to her delivery. And if you know anything about someone having their third baby, they can be pretty fast. 
but they can also take a while. So you can't really say, I'm going to give this factor two hours before the birth with, with very good accuracy. Plus I found out that it takes a long time to get the factor from the pharmacy and then it has to be mixed immediately, but then can't sit around very long. I will tell you that there's a lot of things on the obstetrician side that make the prophylaxis with factor be a little bit more challenging. I learned a lot from that experience and how we need to communicate really well between hematologists and obstetricians. I think these interdisciplinary clinics where we talk to each other is actually helping that a lot. Thank you to Dr. Baldwin for sharing that fascinating case study with us. To round off this segment on reproductive organ health and the risks to symptomatic carriers and women living with haemophilia and other inherited bleeding disorders, we felt it would be remiss of this podcast not to address the US Supreme Court's recent ruling that there is no constitutional right to abortion in America, upending the landmark Roe v. Wade case from nearly 50 years ago that had recognised that the decision whether to continue or end a pregnancy belonged to the individual, not the government. At the time of recording, the Global Haemophilia Report understands that abortion is now illegal or heavily restricted in at least 12 states across the US, and at least 10 other states have laws in place that pave the way to quickly ban or severely restrict access to abortion. Despite the improved treatment available for haemophilia in some parts of the world, families with pre-existing history may face the dilemma of possibly having to make a decision on selective abortion. Likewise, women living with bleeding disorders may also be at an increased risk of miscarriage in early pregnancy. We kindly asked Dr. Baldwin and Kristin Paulison-Nunez to comment. I can put this in perspective of some of the repercussions that we're seeing in restrictive states where providers are wanting to take care of the patient in front of them but feel uncertain about whether they're going to face legal ramifications. There can be a situation where someone is in the process of having a miscarriage, they're having heavy bleeding, and in someone with hemophilia, perhaps consistently moderately heavy bleeding, where the, the fetus does continue to have cardiac activity noted and doesn't have a definitive demise yet, where in most situations we would deem this to be a miscarriage in process. Many providers are being asked to sit on their hands and wait to intervene until the cardiac activity has ceased. And someone with hemophilia, they could be having significant blood loss before they could be managed from a perspective that would be ideal, which would be to intervene as soon as possible to reduce bleeding. So I think that is a significant ramification of the Supreme Court ruling, which isn't something that legislators recognize, I don't think, because they're not physicians and they really shouldn't be making the rules about whether physicians can take care of a patient in, in this vast array of different circumstances. Termination is never an easy decision when we know the mother's life or a baby's life could be in danger. To have that decision or that option removed entirely feels like 10 steps backwards in terms of what we all hope we are doing for women and for families. I think about the patient who may actually be symptomatic and affected and she may have a bleeding complication. I worry about that mom who is bleeding, whose factor rate doesn't really go up as efficiently. For whatever reason, which we can't figure out, there's some other modifying factor, and she really can't maintain this pregnancy. The thought of not even being able to do something to intervene that could save her life 
just destroys me. What does that do to your family unit? What does that do to all the individuals who are impacted by the presence of that individual in their life? I think it's wrong. It disgusts me. It angers me as a mother, as a woman, to remove that choice for parents. I worry about what it's going to do to other options that exist for women, particularly around contraception that we use to help control some women with bleeding disorders. These are birth control options that give back life, allow women to go to work, allow girls to go to school. If those are gone, for me, the thing is what's next. It's just awful to women. Before we round up this episode by highlighting two specific research and advocacy initiatives within the female bleeding disorders community from either side of the Atlantic, let's contemplate some of the known and unknown evidence base about how diagnosis, bleeding characteristics, and the hemorrhagic complications of haemophilic bleeding affects different quality of life domains in these women and girls, with the co-advisors to this episode, Dr. Sidonio and Dr. Wayand. We know in men with hemophilia, there have been a number of good studies that have looked at the obvious reduction in quality of life. There's a number of domains, so physical health, social relationships, mental and emotional health. Those have been well documented that those are reduced, those are affected in men with all different severities. What was interesting is there's been a number of companies, meaning pharmaceutical companies, that have done studies And we've asked them to also include women and the caregivers. What you saw is a lot of the same things in which there was uh, physical function, emotional health and well-being. Those were reduced. I think it's not surprising anybody living with a chronic illness, if they have pain related to their bleeding disorder, that's obviously going to affect things. We looked at the guilt in hemophilia carriers as a project, not because we think women should feel guilty, but we were worried that women were sort of suppressing the guilt that they have. What we saw was that the social interactions actually was better in this population. I think what it is, is it's sort of like all these tragedies and all these issues have brought these groups together and have made these women stronger, have really good connections with the community. And a lot of the initiatives online, this is one of the things where social media actually has been very useful is connecting women and girls from all over the world with these bleeding disorders to help support each other. All these patient advocacy groups tend to be run by women and girls with bleeding disorders. So those relationships are important. When it comes to social and sexual relationships with their spouses or partners, there definitely is some issues there. We're actually finishing up a study because of this issue kept being brought up at meetings. We're looking at sexual quality of life. There's a number of standard questionnaires. And we're seeing that trend because it's not published quite yet. We're still waiting on some patients to finish it. But we're seeing trends in which there's certainly a reduction in sexual quality of life. It sort of makes sense because if you're a woman or a teenage girl, you don't often want to disclose that you have a bleeding disorder with someone. Maybe it's early in the relationship because you don't feel comfortable enough to disclose that. And certainly you don't want to have to disclose it before every sexual contact that you have. So that becomes a little bit troubling for those women. That could put a strain on that sexual relationship and make them have second thoughts about things. We're seeing that in our study. Hopefully by next year, we'll have that study completed. 
I feel like so many times in medicine, throughout all of medicine, that it just becomes like, okay, well, this is what we did in this study of white men 50 years ago. So this is how we're treating people. Or even like now we need data on women. Well, we'll just do the exact same study in women when it's like, but maybe the question is different, right? Or maybe the outcomes are different or you can't necessarily just translate everything and expect to get the answers that you actually need. I think it's important for every piece of research and every piece of clinical care to really evaluate whether just doing what we've done in men is the appropriate thing to do. So we have a lot of data that women who are carriers that have normal levels still have abnormal bleeding. And like a lot of the women who are affected by hemophilia, their bleeding doesn't necessarily correlate that well with their factor levels. But again, I feel like everything in hemophilia has been, well, if you're less than 1%, you're severe. You know what I mean? That is true for men, but I think the data that we have thus far in women, it's not the case for women. There was a nice paper years back by Donna Dina Kelly, where actually the women with severe hemophilia had the least heavy menstrual bleeding out of all of the women affected by hemophilia. Women that are carriers that have normal levels and women with mild hemophilia have more heavy menstrual bleeding than the severe patients in that study. And it was a small number because it's always going to be a small number, but they didn't have a lot of heavy menstrual bleeding. And why is that? We don't understand that. But again, I think all of these definitions and outcomes and everything we have just based on men, even things such as like the treatment, are the pharmacokinetics going to be different in women than men? We don't know because all of the data that we have has been largely in men. In this final segment, we want to give the audio floor to two initiatives that are seeking to challenge the gender bias in haemophilia and put women's bleeding issues on the map. The European Haemophilia Consortium, or EHC, is an international non-profit umbrella organisation representing 48 national patient groups, or national member organisations, NMOs for short, for people living with rare bleeding disorders from 27 member states of the European Union. In 2017, a number of passionate and vocal women from across the community came together to set up a Women and Bleeding Disorders Committee. Its chair is Evelyn Grimberg, a member of the Dutch Haemophilia Society and a female living with glansman thrombothenia, a rare platelet disorder that can present life-threatening bleeding. This committee exists about eight people. Our main goal is to get a better quality of life for women and girls with bleeding disorders in general. We do that by educating people, raising awareness on a topic, working together with like the EHAT. That's the European Association of Haemophilia and Allied Disorders, who are a membership organisation for multidisciplinary healthcare professionals that provide care for people living with inherited bleeding disorders. We published a publication last year about principles of care for women and girls with bleeding disorders. Also access to treatment and diagnosis and care is a topic that we work on. We are very happy that in the last few years we have been better in touch with women, better in touch with the animals in Europe. We hope that we can move forward on that part, especially working on getting better integrated to the animals will be awesome. You see that it is slowly working, that we got seen that they understand better the need of women and the importance of working on this topic. Yannick, who we heard from earlier in the episode, is also a member of the EHC's Women and Bleeding Disorders Committee. 
I think uh, the really important uh, thing is that together we are going further and faster. I've seen some groups of women who are making things in three years that we have taken in France 10 years to do. So I think by sharing our tools, by helping the others, we hope to create a network between women and help them to make their voice heard, to share information, and also to create training for them to advocate for themselves in front of the board and also in front of the Ministry of Health and different, different groups. The EHC held their first ever conference on women and bleeding disorders in Frankfurt in 2019, so pre-COVID. This year, the event returned in person in Switzerland with a comprehensive three-day agenda covering everything from gynaecological bleeds, sexual health and intimacy, to musculoskeletal health, psychosocial issues and advocacy. Across the pond, in September of last year, the NHF hosted their inaugural State of the Science Research Summit, where they brought together the Inherited Bleeding Disorders community virtually to identify and accelerate research progress in the areas of greatest need for affected individuals and their families. Here's Dawn Rotolini with The Lowdown. One of the things we had was a women and girls working group. It was providers. It were women with bleeding disorders. It was just a complete range at the table that worked together for about six months prior to the State of the Science Summit. In that, we called out things like, what are the issues? Testing, right? Nomenclature was a big part of that inclusion and trials, and what are the barriers to those things? So there was a real blueprint that came out of that. What are the top questions we should be asking? And out of those questions, the research blueprint is taking those next steps to make sure that what was driven out of that group now gets addressed by NHF. One of those things is data. Until we start focusing on collecting data, we will not get the attention of payers. We will not get the attention of treaters. Dr. Wayand was the co-chair of the Women and Girls Working Group, alongside Dr. Baldwin. We had a big group of multidisciplinary representatives, including patient representatives, physical therapy, social work, and genetic counseling, and obstetricians, gynecologists, and hematologists, just like every kind of discipline you can think of that cares for these patients. We really went through where to focus our efforts in terms of moving forward and trying to improve the care of these patients. Ultimately, we need to identify the patients. I think that there's also a huge issue going back to identifying in primary care with what are like red flags. For example, like postpartum hemorrhage, there's not a clear thing that if an obstetrician sees X amount or even how that's measured, there's not standardized ways that these patients are identified that should be referred to hematology or should have further workup done. I think that bleeding measurement is huge, not only with postpartum hemorrhage, but with menstrual blood loss, we need better ways of measuring these things and identifying these women. But there's also a huge interest and a lot of need for patient-centered outcomes. This group was just fascinating to me with the different perspectives that they had. They brought a lot of things to the table to understand the gaps in the research. And we went through an iterative process to figure out which were the most important priorities for research in this population. Another member of the Women and Girls Working Group was Christine Paulison-Nunez. You can see in NHF's State of the Science workshop that I was honored to be a part of. There are those gaps and that we need to develop research aims 
to see if we can address some of these concerns. Let's just take pregnancy as an example. We worry about the fetus, but we're also worried about the mother. And how do factor levels impact during pregnancy? What measures do we need to take account of prior to delivery that might aid in reducing the risk of a bleed for a mom who's in a postpartum hemorrhage or the risk of bleed for a newborn who may be affected with hemophilia? How do we help women to plan for those deliveries too? We are recognizing new areas in which we need to further understand these unknown questions and how they impact a pregnancy to best address where do we need to move into next in order to care for these patients. We're just about finished writing a manuscript summarizing the findings from our working group, and I'm really excited for it to be published and to be able to see the documentation of these findings as well of all the other working groups. I think what's nice is that we all had patient representatives on the working group as well, because really I think the best research is going to come out of where are things lacking from your perspective as a patient because they really know what's best about what's working and what's not. I think that it's very easy to look at the data and kind of look at what we've done historically and feel really dejected and pessimistic. But I think that there's actually a lot of reasons to be optimistic. We have a lot of momentum. There's been a lot of work in this area. I think that we now have big societies that are saying women can have hemophilia There are more and more studies being done. I've heard from many different pharmaceutical companies that this is an interest that they specifically have. So I think that this is a really exciting time and that we need to really use that momentum, right? There still is so much work to be done, but we're finally in a place where it seems like people are ready to do this work and invested in this and that there are resources available. I'm hopeful that things like this podcast, but also different initiatives that different organizations are doing will help us to capitalize on all that momentum. Within the inherited bleeding disorders community, the tides are finally turning for women and girls who have been kept on the sidelines in treatment and care for far too long. But a new era is dawning, spawned by a remarkable collective of patient and clinical actors that are striving for gender and health equity. Clearly, this episode has only scratched the surface of this population's needs and demands. And while very courageous efforts are being made to tackle the evidence gaps and raise standards of care for women and girls impacted by haemophilia around the world, institutionalised forms of attacks on women's rights persist and women continue to be disproportionately affected by all forms of discrimination in every aspect of life. Through the eyes of Marx and Engels, the struggle for the emancipation of women is inextricably linked to class struggle. The fight for women's emancipation is not the fight against the other sex, but against the sociological gender construction which provides a structure for the hegemony of one sex over the other. Ever since the dawn of class society, women's position has been subordinate to men and the oppression of the female sex is very much intertwined with the present-day capitalist system. For women to transcend these barriers and break through the social and economic ceiling that has been forced upon them will necessitate a collective response, bringing together all threads of oppressed groups of people in society, including females living with inherited bleeding disorders, for a true sense of freedom and equality of opportunity. The final word of this episode goes to Dawn Rottolini. So you had asked me, what's one thing I want to leave with people? If you are being impacted 
in any way by bleeding that just seems like it's a lot, if it just doesn't seem quite right, if any volume of bleeding interferes with your daily activities, wakes you from sleep, interferes with work or school, stains your clothing or your sheets, or causes you undue pain for no apparent reason, then ask. Go to our website, hemophilia.org, Go to betteryouknow.org. Take a simple test. It takes less than five minutes to take this test. If you already have a diagnosis, please share that with those people around you, with your friends, because we know there are many, many people out there that don't have diagnosis and don't have access to care. The statistics show that from the propensity that somebody out there is going to have a bleeding disorder that hasn't been diagnosed. So don't be afraid to talk about it. Use real words. Let's destigmatize the fact that we bleed and let's destigmatize the fact that it's this horrible thing to talk about. Let's bring everybody to the table so that they can get diagnosis and treatment. Thank you. That's a wrap for episode six of the Global Haemophilia Report on prioritizing research on the health and well-being of women and girls living with haemophilia. We would like to say a big thank you to this episode's fantastic guests in order of appearance. Dr. Angela Wayand, Dawn Rottolini, Dr. Robert Sidonio, Yannick Cole, Dr. Connie Miller, Dr. Tyler Buckner, Dr. Andrew James, Dr. Maureen Baldwin, Christine Paulison-Nunez, and last but not least, Evelyn Grimberg. Also, a specific shout-out to Dr. Wayand and Dr. Sidonio for being co-advisors to this episode. Thank you to the Global Haemophilia Report's senior advisor, Dr. Donna D. Michele, and to our featured advertiser, Sanafi. For a list of links to the referenced research, organisations, and other aspects to do with women and girls living with haemophilia, please take a look at the programme notes for this episode in your podcast player or visit this episode's webpage on bloodstreammedia.com. To be notified when the next episode drops, be sure to subscribe to the Global Haemophilia Report podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And make sure to share this episode with friends or colleagues in the field. You'll also find the Global Haemophilia Report's social media pages on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Thank you to our producer, Keith Cornerluck, our editor, Jose Miguel Baez, graphic designer, Christina Newhard, creative director, Joshua Sterling Bragg, and executive producers, Amy Board, Rob Bradford, and Ryan Geelan. My name is Lawrence Willard, and you've been listening to the Global Haemophilia Report. Until next time. Sanofi is breaking barriers for people with hemophilia through groundbreaking science so they can live beyond the limitations of their condition. Learn more about Sanofi's commitment at sanofihemophilia.com.